Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 41. There is an insert that has the verses I will read to begin, but we will uh, refer to the verses in the span that you see there printed. Isaiah 41, starting at verse 21, and we'll go through to verse 9 of chapter 42. Your Pew Bible, you can find this on page 601, starts at the very bottom of the page, and then on to page 602. But you will have to have your Bible, whatever version you have there, uh, opened up to this passage so you can follow along fully as we walk through these wonderful verses. The first part of chapter 41, the first 20 verses, has to do with the absolute sovereignty and supremacy of God over all events, historical and personal. He's sovereign, but he's personally there with each of us. He's with his people, corporately for sure, working and moving and directing, providentially guiding all things to his appointed end. Now in the second half of chapter 41, he wants the peoples, not just Israel, but all peoples, bring to him so he can see what gods you believe in. Bring your idols, God says. Bring them to me. Let's analyze them and see how God they are. And then in chapter 42, after exposing this great trouble of idolatry that all mankind suffers from, he gives the answer to this trouble that we have. And we find it in his servant, Christ himself. So here as I read, I'll start by reading verse 29 of chapter 41 and then into chapter 42. Follow as I read God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we come to you as a weak people who easily drift away from you toward idols. We rejoice in the gift of your Son who has freed us from our false devotions and has ransomed us from our just penalty. We pray for a deeper love for you, the only one who deserves our trust, our adoration, praise, and service. Lord, please make your word understandable to us as we read and consider this morning. 
Give us compassion for a world of people who are chasing after nothing instead of resting in Christ. Lord, in our world, there are so many troubles, yet you have answered them resoundingly, all these troubles, in Jesus. I pray this in his name. Amen. As you can see uh, by the last verse of chapter 41 that I read, verse 29, and we'll go back and start at verse 21 in a moment, that once again the prophet is dealing with the devotion of man's heart, people's hearts. It's not on God, it's on created things, on idols. And this has been a timeless problem since the Garden of Eden that we would place something else on the throne rather than God. We wouldn't say it outrightly, we might not craft something the same way they did then, but we have idols, we have things that fill the place that only God can fill, and we struggle with this. Now, if you're wondering what things have become an idol to you, and you think in terms of created things, and other things can become idols too, they are other created things, but there's people, there are places, things that can become idols to us. The way you really gauge it, if somebody asks you to borrow something of yours, how do you feel when they ask? Now, not what you do, because you have to smile and, and share. But really, it bugs you. I remember 10 years ago, we had bought a new vehicle, a new van. Now, it's bad enough I had to drive a minivan, but it, nevertheless, it was brand new, and it smelled new, and it was, it was beautiful. I remember Brian Huff, who at the time was our youth pastor. Yeah, that's all you need to say. I don't have to say anything else, right? And the best part is Laura's going to hear this because she edits these sermons, and I want her to make sure she hears this on this CD. Brian calls me and says, we're doing a middle school youth scavenger hunt on the weekend. Can I borrow your van? Middle schoolers, no less. I could see the smell of that van was going to be over quick. And then Brian's driving it on top of the whole thing. I mean, this was painful for me. And it's funny to us, but there is a sense in which I didn't want to let him have something of mine. And think of other things like this. If somebody asked you for it, how would you feel about it? Admit that it is very easy for us to put too much devotion into created things. And created things could even be people. Too much devotion into a person more than we put into God. All sorts of idols. I could name them. And we would all have that sense of conviction. You know what it is for you. You know what tweaks you when God says, or, or it seems as though he's going to change this in your life, or take this thing from you, or withhold this thing, or put you in another place, whatever it may be, our idols start to really show when we come under some kind of duress. I love what Ray Ortland says about this particular phenomena of idols, and in particular in this passage. He wrote, our root problem is not social or intellectual or even moral, as we usually think of it. Our root problem in all of life is that we keep going after false gods for their false salvations. More than we realize, our hearts complicate the profound simplicity of faith in God, and then we wonder why we're so disappointed with life. Now, the message is for Christians. We understand idolatry, even as believers. The people of God have struggled with this. But imagine the world over, where they don't have the answer. They don't have the response of Christ and understand it's him who takes away these longings or saves us from these longings after false gods who can't save or satisfy. The world out there is in misery searching for things to fill the void. And they may look happy, but don't be fooled because those things will fail them. And so the world has manifold troubles because of the heart's desire to fill a void that only God can fill with other stuff. So, yes, 
we understand this and we struggle. But recognize the pain that people outside of these walls feel who don't know Christ at all. There's no struggle. They're trying to fill the God void with something else that we all know will not work for them. And it's miserable when it doesn't work. The world's trouble as evidenced by the delusional worship of false gods can only be remedied by what Isaiah lays here forth for us and will expound for the rest of the book. It can only be remedied, remedied by the true and living God, not false and dead idols, but the true and living God, the only one who could remedy this delusion, this trouble that we have. Well, what is this trouble in particular? Go back to verse 21 of chapter 41 where this section of the book starts to address very, very personally and specifically idolatry. Verse 21, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. So like uh, the judge and the jury himself calling into his tribunal, God is calling people to bring these idols, these gods that they have been trusting in. He sets up this imaginary courtroom situation. Okay, you who are worshiping false gods, come show me what you have. Bring them here. Let's analyze your gods. Verse 22, let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Let's see your gods. How will they tell us the way things are? How will they give the meaning to the world? How will they tell us what will happen in the future? Because Jehovah knows the future. Jehovah will tell you the future and it will come to pass. He has done it before, he will do it again. So bring your gods who you're devoting your lives to, that you're spending so much emotion on, that you're spending so much of your, so much of your uh, investment upon. Let's bring them, let's, let's analyze them in this light. They should be able to tell us the future, right? I mean, what God couldn't? Are they gods if they can't? Bring them, let's analyze them. And there was even a practice beyond just the practice of setting up a literal metal idol and worshiping it and asking God to answer things for them. There was literally the practice of divination where they would take an animal and sacrifice it. They would cut it open and look at how the intestines were laid out and try to determine the future on the basis of it. That's still done in parts of the world. People striving after knowing it only God can tell so they go to their false gods, they make their false gods. He's saying, bring them, let's see what they can tell us about the future. Now, Look at verse 23. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods to do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Tell us what you're going to do, gods. So imagine now, it's silly, okay? They've got these metal idols. Of course they're not going to be able to answer. They're, they're dumb idols. They can't speak. They're created things. But what would this look like for us? God may say to you, bring that house that you put so much of your investment in emotionally, your devotion to. Bring that to me. Let me see how it can take care of you, how it will always be here, how it always has been there. Maybe it's that car. Maybe it's that video game. Maybe it's that person that you are worshiping more than God. Bring that person. Let me see how God-like they are, how perfectly faithful they will be to you, how utterly devoted they will be to you. Let me see that God that you have that you say. Let me see that child's activity that you devoted your whole family to pursuing and chasing. Let's see how that will help you. That job, that person, that place, that thing. Bring it. Let's see how it compares to the true and living God. Verse 24. 
This is the rendering that God gives as the idols come before him figuratively. God makes this declaration. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Who would choose you because you're nothing, idol? You can't provide any of the things God can provide. Emptiness is all you will bring. You're not just nothing. You're less than nothing. Why does God send us trials and tribulations? One of the reasons is so that we are shown how we are holding on to things that cannot hold us. We see our idols clearly when we're under duress. Isaiah prophesies in verse 25 about raising one from the east and then he moves over to the north. He would come down to Israel from the north. Cyrus, again, like in the beginning of the chapter. Eventually, Cyrus, the leader of the Persians, would be used by God to rescue them from Babylonian exile. Verse 25, I stirred up one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as, as on mud or mortar, as the potter treads on clay. So he is forecasting for them an eventual deliverance that he will provide for his people. And he's saying it in this sense, I will raise up the one who will do my bidding. Um, He is not God. In fact, he'll have to call upon me for any strength he has, and he will be used of me to deliver you back to the land. So think of what's happened. Assyria has come and gone. Babylon is rising. They will eventually be taken captive by Babylon and exiled, deported. And then while they're in this period of exile, this word will make sense to them as it prophesies it. And it also says there will be one who comes from the north who will free you from this, or God will use to trample the nations and free you from this, who is Cyrus, who issues a decree so they can go back. The point is, God could tell you the future. Your idols can't. You brought them into my courtroom. They couldn't tell us a thing. Let me tell you what, what's going to happen, exactly what will occur. Do not worship men or things. Worship the one who has created and controls them. The uncreated one is the only being deserving of our praise and devotion. Verse 26, Who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say he is right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed it, none who heard your words. You put so much stock, so much, you invest so much in things that cannot tell you anything. But I can tell you everything. I know it all. I'm from the beginning. I always was. The created idol that you were worshiping, it was created at one point. It's nothing. It's less than nothing. Verse 27, I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one among these. There is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. I'm the one who's your God. I am God, God says. And then he says, in the presence of all these idols that have been brought into his tribunal, none of them are giving any answers. And truth is, you know and I know the idols don't give us answers. We think they will. We, we strive after them. We invest in them, uh, we give up of ourselves for them, and they never, ever respond. They never satisfy, they just want more. They get old, we don't care about them, we want a different one. But God's not like this. That's not how God functions. Verse 29, kind of a final declaration about this subject of idols. Behold, they are all a delusion. Something you think is real, but it's not. That's what a delusion is. They are a delusion. What a great picture of idols. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. 
All these verses in Isaiah reveal the real trouble of the world worshiping false gods. People, places, things that we idolize, that we lift up. Voltaire said, if there were no God, if there was no God, then we'd have to create one. And what he means is that man, because he's made in the image of God, has a longing or a gnawing for something outside himself. And the only place that it is found is in Christ, in God. That's what we find. But people who don't find this go on living in this nonstop, this this constant wheel that turns that can never stop turning, and they never find satisfaction. So they make idols. They make up gods, things that they can fill the void with. God says in this passage to begin, bring your gods before me. Let's see what they have. Let's analyze them under the microscope of truth. In one of uh, his best books, Tim Keller writes, Counterfeit Gods. He wrote it about 10 years ago, and I think it's one of those kind of must-reads in a given time period, and for American Christians especially, it would, really, it would help us to read the words that he puts to pen. Uh, one section in particular that I think summarizes it well, the issue of idolatry, is we may be tempted to think of it as a problem in the past that was more concrete with these, these idols that they crafted with their hands. But listen to what Keller said. The human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think that we can have us, have, they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. Thus, anything can be an idol, and really, everything has been an idol to one person or another. The great deception of idols is that we are prone to think that idols are only bad things. But evil is far more subtle than this. We think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. That perspective helps us recognize how readily we move towards idolatry. It could be a person more than God. It could be your children more than God. It could be a pleasure like sex or food more than God. It could be success in our jobs that we're never, uh, we never stop striving for, success with our families or whatever, our church. It could be a power or influence. It could be money or the stuff that money can buy. Really, what a better picture than a futility of the idolatry than the stuff we buy. You know, you buy something, you long for something, you long for it, you think, if I have this, man, I'll be happier, and you buy it, and you have it, and it's remarkable how quickly it loses its luster, how quickly you're like, wow, this, is, this isn't that great, and wow, look around at everybody else, and it's kind of old, too. I need another one. I need something else. That's the futility that we find with idols. So the world's trouble in a nutshell is idolatry. The world's trouble is striving after false gods who cannot satisfy or save. Wasted lives pouring devotion into empty things are littered all around us. And so God in this light brings us now a recurring theme that we will find throughout the rest of this prophecy of Isaiah. Starting now in verse 1, something is already mentioned a bit in verse 41, Now in chapter 41, in chapter 42, starting at verse 1, here's his response. After exposing the stupidity of idols, in verse 24, 
Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. Then in verse 29, behold, they are all a delusion. Now verse 1, behold, my servant. Idols, my servant. I want you to compare them. Idols or my servant. Now, my servant can't be another created thing. A created thing can't help us now. What does he mean? Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. The problem of idolatry is so deep that you cannot get yourself out of it. You require a rescue. Only God can send one to rescue us from our idolatrous hearts and souls. His servant must come to do this work. His servant must be the one who provides us relief or liberation from our slavery to idols. We cannot do it. Now, when we hear about idols and we hear about misplaced devotion, it sickens us and we want to be rid of it. But we cannot be rid of it unless God rids us and our hearts of that which drives after it. It's just something that we want gone but can't get rid of unless he gets rid of it for us. And the world out there, even more so, cannot help itself unless God intervenes. We must have help from the outside. I remember in its most vivid detail this kind of phenomena personally and physically. When I was playing soccer about six years ago, I jumped up for a head ball, and some of you remember the story. I came back down and landed awkwardly in my knee completely dislocated. Yes, completely. If you want a picture, I'll send it to you. Be happy. It came out in my, my, upper, uh, my lower part of my leg, came up over my lower part, and the x-ray shows the, two, shows the two bones like this in my kneecap over here. And I remember staring down at it the moment after it happened. And it didn't hurt immediately. I looked at it, and I saw my kneecap shoved up. And my first response was to put it back in the right place. So I grabbed the bottom part of my leg, and I tried to straighten my leg out, at which time I realized there's no possible way. The pain from my my nerve that had bent around and everything, I can't even describe for you what it's like. And it hit me and I realized I could not help myself. It was terribly destroyed is what it looked like to me. And in the sense of despair and just awful pain that came over me and what situation I was in, it's picturesque when we are confronted with the reality of our idolatry. We know it's true. We see what it is. But unless God intervenes, We'll keep on with what we're worshiping. And so he says, behold my servant. He fixes our eyes away from idols and on to his servant. This is what God does now for us through this prophecy. Behold my servant whom I uphold, so it's sure to stay firm. My chosen in whom my soul delights. So this is something that God delights in. This is his servant. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. I love what Franz Dalich says as this section of the scripture starts to unfold. He said, what is here affirmed, this servant of Jehovah, goes infinitely beyond anything which the pro- any prophet has ever called on or written about. No man is capable of what the prophet describes. Dalich says, it must therefore be the future Christ. And we know it's, this is the case as this description unfolds. And what we have in the first nine verses is the description of the servant, and then there will be a series of songs that are sung in praise of the servant, several of them. We'll start looking at those next week. But now, see the servant, the answer to our troubles. 
That earlier prophecy about Cyrus was simply to let them know this short-term prophecy that he will fulfill can make you be sure that this long-term one of his servant will also be true. Verse 2, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Now pay close attention to this description. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Now, if there's any question about whether this is forecasting Christ, the question is answered in the Gospel of Matthew. When Matthew records Jesus' interaction with his disciples, and listen to what is said in Matthew 12. Jesus withdrew from there. So there you have, he's not crying it aloud, lifting up his voice, not making it heard in the street, not in this part of his mission. Jesus withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. And he ordered them not to make him known. It wasn't yet part of the plan to be revealed yet. It was still somewhat subdued as he was there to come pay for their sins on the cross. More would unfold publicly for sure, but at this point, perfectly fulfilling what Isaiah forecasts, he ordered them not to make him known. And then it says in Matthew 12, verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Isaiah sees Jesus' ministry in terms of its full accomplishment. So, When the prophet starts to explain Jesus' ministry, please recognize his vision of this. He sees Messiah coming and answering all things, which is completely true. Now, what the prophet doesn't apparently see is how long that would take and in what sequence of events it would happen. So Jesus comes and inaugurates his kingdom. He comes to do the work, and he will have to do that work over the course of time. He continues to do that work now, even as we sit. And he will consummate that work ultimately when he comes again. That's what we look forward to. And in his case, he will not grow faint or be discouraged. You remember who does? All of us. Even the youth will, be, will fall faint and discouraged. And those who are renewed are those who trust in God, who wait for the Lord. But the Lord himself, he will not become faint. This is how we know the servant is God himself. Verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This is one verse to summarize all of what Messiah does and is still doing now in our time. It's forecasting a day when Jesus will visibly reign over all the earth. He will come. He will visit as his servant, which he has come. And he has come in the way that Isaiah forecasts, and he has done the work on our behalf, paid for our sins completely on the cross, and was raised again to sit at the right hand of the Father, where from there... He builds his kingdom, which is a spiritual kingdom, where he brings people, he subdues hearts to himself. He, when he came, shed light on all unrighteousness. He brings justice first in this sense, that the righteous one comes and shines a light against the darkness, and truth is revealed when this happens. And that's the first level of justice. People talk about social justice and liberation of people from their social ills. 
That's secondary to the main liberation we need, which is from our sins. And so when Jesus comes, he sheds light on that justice, and that's how he brings it. And then from that place, then you could see real justice start to be exacted, but not fully until he comes in his consummated kingdom, ultimately, when he wills. And we look forward to that day. Thus says God the Lord, verse 5, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot rid ourselves of idolatry. The servant comes to pay for the sins that we have committed in our idolatry and to give us freedom from it, freedom to worship him. In order to bring this ultimate justice, God sends the clear message of himself through his servant. And now in verse 6, you have God the Father essentially commissioning God the Son, commissioning his servant. Verse, tw- verse 6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. To save us from our idolatry, he must come and be our Savior. So no one gets glory except for God the Savior himself. What a picture of the servant who we know to be Christ. God's servant, Christ, brings true liberation. And the first way he brings this liberation, this first way he frees us from our prison of darkness, is to declare God's truth by his words and his deeds when he came. The second way in which he brings liberation is by offering himself as the acceptable sacrifice for our sins. He then receives the just punishment of God for sin on our behalf, even though he himself knew no sin. Third, he brings liberation by rising again. And by being seated at the right hand of God the Father, from there he rules and reigns. He makes intercession for us. He makes the nations a footstool for his ultimate writings of all wrongs. He sent his spirit to expand his kingdom. And he expands his kingdom, which is a spiritual kingdom. Through Christ, God liberates us from the futility of giving praise where it doesn't belong. And that's why in verse 8, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So in Christ, we are renewed. We are renewed. So now we have a new affection. In Christ, we can worship God now and not idols. We're able to see idols for what they are and God for who he is. And we find our satisfaction, our true satisfaction in glorifying God. This is why The catechism gets it right by saying, what is man's chief end? It's to glorify God. And guess what? When you glorify God, you have found your purpose for existence, and you will enjoy him. The world's trouble is it doesn't get this. The world's trouble is it's trying to worship self. The world's trouble is it's worshiping idols. True liberation comes when we are restored to our place as God's prized creation, worshiping him alone. God saves us by his servant who is now introduced So we stop giving glory to anyone but him. 
Give glory to his servant because it's him, God the Son. Look what the servant does in verse 9 of our text. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. He's looking ahead to what will happen under the servant's ministry. The hope of the world lies in the servant of the Lord. Now, I want you to think of how this played out after Jesus ascends into heaven and he commissions his disciples. Paul, the apostle, as one example, goes and preaches the gospel of good news, of liberation through Christ, liberation from our sins through Christ, his finished work. And churches crop up. One such church is in Corinth, a church that looks very similar to America. Lots of the same distractions, lots of the same temptations and possibilities. And the people struggle with idolatry, like everybody, but very specifically in ways that we would relate with. And so in the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. He writes it early on in the book. I speak as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Flee from idolatry. He understood what a a draw it would be for Christians. So later in 2 Corinthians, when he writes another letter to them, He's talking about the the culture at large now and warning the people of God. He said, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Their eyes are on idols, not on Christ. Beware of what's around you. It will tempt you. Now, pause. Back to verse 9 in Isaiah 42. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Now, back to Paul, to the Corinthians, and to us. He says in 2 Corinthians, and I want you to listen closely, 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, Paul writes, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The world needs to be reconciled to God. And we have been given that ministry because we've been freed from idols. We've been freed from depending on things that cannot save us. We've been freed unto Christ so we can believe on him and have true liberation. And that's how all these old things have passed away and they become new. And we find this only in God's servant who is Christ. What's the world's chief trouble? Futile, empty, exhausting, disappointing idolatry the worship of self, and the stuff that we create. Idol worshiping is so dissatisfying. We think it will satisfy us, but it always leaves us empty and longing for more. Nothing makes people more unhappy and leaves them more disappointed than idols. What's the remedy? God's servant, Christ. The servant of God himself breaking us from our misplaced devotion and giving us a passion for God instead of people, places, or things. I think one of the great examples in history is Augustine. Augustine lived uh, into adulthood as someone who was striving after satisfaction. He wanted a resolution to his satisfaction, and he sought it in every possible way. Uh, Unlike many leaders of the church, this is not a man who grew up understanding who God was, although his mother was devoted. And he went out and looked for it in all the wrong places, in all the ways you can imagine, and he could not find it in those places. But God kept moving in his life, moving circumstances, showing himself to be there, present, calling upon him to repent. At least that's, that's the way you would describe his experience for sure. And after, when he, 
came to Christ, when God grabbed him away from his idols and brought him to Christ, he penned a book called Confessions, where he confesses all the things that he believed and felt before his conversion and on the way to being converted, and what he thinks now after being in Christ. And here's some words I'll leave you with from Augustine. Late have I loved you, he's talking to God. Beauty so old and so new. Late have I loved you. And see, you were within. And I was in the external world and sought you there. And in my unlovely state, I plunged into those lovely things which you made. You were with me, and I was not with you. The lovely things kept me far from you. Though if they did not have their existence in you, they had no existence at all. You called and cried out aloud and shattered my deafness. You were radiant and resplendent. You put to flight my blindness. You were fragrant and drew my breath, and now I pant after you. I tasted you, and I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touched me, and I am set on fire to attain the peace which is yours. The world's trouble is evidenced by the delusional worship of false gods can only be remedied by the true and living God. Let's pray. Lord God, you have saved us by Christ, your perfect servant and our all-sufficient Savior. We need the ministry of your Spirit to enable us to render all worship and praise to you alone. Help us to see the stuff that we idolize in a different light. Give us a right relationship with people, with places and things. Make us feel hunger and thirst for you alone. As you have made all things new for us, your redeemed people, I pray for your witness to go forth through us so the people around us would find the only relief there is from their troubles is in Christ himself, in whom I pray. Amen.